In our series, The Church, uh, What Should It Do? We come tonight to thinking about communion, the Lord's Supper. Some years ago, um, in a former church that Jeanette and I served in, I decided to take uh, a fairly uh, extensive survey of the church membership, um, not just to find out their, their habits in attending church worship on Sundays, uh, uh, engaging with, weekend, uh, with weekday activities, but I actually wanted to know what the church believed and what it felt able um, to communicate to other people who didn't know anything about the Christian faith. So I, in that survey, I set a question that read something like, um, how confident or able would you be in explaining the following to a non-Christian? And set out a whole list of about 12 things, including the church, scripture, salvation, doctrine of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, a Baptistic, Congregational, Evangelical, Conservative Church. Uh, I thought they would all have it off pretty accurately. But you know, the thing that they were least confident in was the very thing that marked them out as distinctive in a town where there was numerous other evangelical churches. Because they practiced believer's baptism by full immersion. And we celebrated the Lord's Supper every week. And yet of these two things that were the main distinctives among the evangelicals in town, these were the very things that that church congregation felt least able to explain to a non-Christian. So why the hesitancy or the lack of confidence? Had these things just become rituals, traditions that, although once good and significant, had lost their value through over-familiarization or maybe a lack of biblical teaching or explanation? Maybe it's something that they were always done and nobody had ever explained it to them. Now, I never found the answer to that, but um, the one thing I was convinced of is that unless we're able to fully understand the significant purposes of find anything that we do, we won't be able to give those outside a church any explanation, clear explanation for it. I want you to, for a moment, imagine that there is a non-Christian sitting beside you in church tonight. And, and that's, that's possible. <laughs> I don't know how probable it is, but it's possible. They're a non-Christian, and this person just keeps badgering you right from the start of the service. What's that guy standing up the front for? What's he saying that for? Uh, what's he doing? Why are we singing that? Uh, the story's told that that happened in a church one time, and, and this person just kept on asking, what, what are they taking up the money for? Who does that go to? And, and, and what's all that about playing a keyboard or a band? And, 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 and what, why, are we, why are we standing up and down to sing? And, and, and what's he doing now? He's praying. And and, and why did the minister just take his watch off? Uh, me taking my watch off, that means absolutely nothing at all. The rest of it does have some significance. But could you explain what we're about tonight to a non-Christian? Could I? So why should we do communion? Is it simply a tradition? Does it have any spiritual benefits? How should we do communion? Should we sit in our seats and have an elder or someone else bring us bread and wine? Maybe we should get out of our seats and come down the front and be served by a pastor or an elder, or maybe we should just help ourselves. Uh, 
should someone, uh, should we say uh, something to one another as we pass the bread and the wine? Should we stay silent? Should we eat or drink as we receive? Should we use bread that is cut into a small piece? Or should we pull something from a whole loaf? Should we use individual cups, all drink from one large cup? What should the cups be made of? Plastic, silver, gold, etc., etc. We can ask all sorts of questions about communion. Who should do communion? Signed up members of the church, all Christians present, anyone? Can children take part? And if so, should their parents be Christians or should the children be baptized first? When should we do communion? Should it be after the church meeting, during the church meeting, in the morning, in the evening, monthly, weekly, quarterly, annually? What should we use to do communion? White bread, brown bread, biscuits, unleavened bread? Should we use alcoholic, non-alcoholic wine, fruit juice, etc., etc., etc.? How should we do communion? What's communion about? And you know, the truth is, all of us will have an opinion to all of these questions. Won't we? If our pastor said to the church, send your answers in on a postcard or by email how you think we should do communion and when, he'd get lots of suggestions. And we wouldn't necessarily all agree on how that should be done. I'm not going to invite it, Paul. Don't look so worried. We're not going to do that. But we've just read in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Apostle Paul, writing in response to something that's going on in that church, says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. That actually when you come together to meet, which the writer of the Hebrews says that we must not stop doing because that's a sin, Paul says when you come together to meet, rather than them doing you good, they do more harm than if you hadn't met at all. And that seems to be focused on um, what is called the New Testament love feast, but within that love feast of just eating together, uh, taking bread and wine, and using it in the way that Jesus reinterprets the, reinterprets the Passover meal that he shares with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, we're to focus on what Jesus has done for us and all the benefits of what he gained for us on the cross on Calvary's hill. Someone has described communion as a time for rehearsal and for reflection. What I think they mean by that is that it's a time for us to rehearse the gospel message. Uh, that's a great benefit if there are non-Christians present. But it's also a good time for believers, for us as believers, to be reminded of the most important thing that we can talk about with people that we meet until we next again come round the Lord's table. Tells us something of what should be high on our list of priorities to talk about with our non-Christians. Imagine the opportunity after having communion on a Sunday, Monday morning in the office, in the workplace. What did you do at the weekend? Well, I sat with a group of fellow believers and we celebrated the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ when he died for my sin on the cross and he rose again from the dead. You're going to get one or two reactions, maybe three. You're going to get a curiosity that's going to lead to an amazing conversation or that person's never going to ask you on a Monday morning again what you did at the weekend. It's a time for rehearsal, but it's also a time for reflection because it's a time to reflect on our own personal walk with Jesus and our relationship with other believers. And tonight, I want to mention, there may be others that you can think of, 
But I want to mention five ways in which communion helps us focus and gives it a timeless meaning. Well, it's not a timeless meaning because we only do this until Christ returns. And the first thing I think that we do at communion, and I'm not sure the order this should come in, but this is the order I'm giving them to you tonight, is that we commemorate. Because communion is a backward look. Can we have the first caption up there? We commemorate. Luke 22 Verse 19 through 20 says, And Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ left no monument? left no memorial. He didn't even write a book. But what he left us in remembrance of himself was a fellowship meal uh, by which we draw close to him. We remember the sacrifice of his body and his blood given for us in death. It's a once-for-all sacrifice, we're told in Hebrews 10 and 10. It's not being offered anew, and it's not even being reenacted. When we gather at the Lord's table for communion, we're not offering a new sacrifice. We're remembering. And we're remembering so much more than a single event in history. Maybe some of you have been to Oberammergau. Maybe some of you have been out to Dundas Castle. Maybe some of you were in Princess Street Gardens yesterday and you saw a reenactment of what took place. That's not what communion is. It's not a reenactment of the events. It's a remembering. And more than remembering just a single event in history, a remembering encompasses the very central and eternal truths of the gospel. I, I found this list as I studied and prepared this week about why we should remember. We should remember because Jesus left heaven to be born in a human body, Philippians 2. He became poor that we might become rich, 2 Corinthians 8. He bore our sins in his own body in the tree, 1 Peter 2. He willingly took our place in judgment and under the wrath of God, Isaiah 53. His blood paid a price for our redemption, Revelation and Peter. He conquered death for us forever, Matthew 28, Revelation 1. He ascended back into heaven to finish his redemptive work and to serve as our high priest forever, Hebrews 7 and verse 25. If you want the list of that verses, uh, speak to me later. That's what we should be remembering, all of that, not just the event in history, but what that event teaches us that Jesus did for us. It's certainly a time to remember, but so much more than is pro uh, portrayed in a picture or can be gleaned from watching a reenactment of the events, no matter how moving, no matter how poignant these things might be. It's more than that. Secondly, we communicate. It's an upward look. John 6 and verse 56 says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. See, we don't worship a dead Christ. We worship a risen Savior. And, and as we, his people, share in the bread and the wine, 
we give thanks and praise, using that as an opportunity to renew our fellowship with the risen Lord and also with his people. What does it mean that we should observe the body of Jesus? Uh, surely that points us to that epic event 2,000 years ago on the cross. But I think it, it's more significant than that. I think that it has a significance that says that it's us around us as well in the church. And we'll come and think about that more fully. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are publicly identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. Now, a lost person could take the Lord's Supper but never be saved. In fact, it may even be detrimental to their salvation, uh, some people would believe. And again, we would have mixed views about that. But do you know one of the saddest things that I think that I've heard uh, from, from a church leader's perspective was one time in a hospice where people are dying of terminal illnesses, and um, this lady who was um, working on behalf of a particular part of, of the community that would identify itself as Christian, but, but looks at these things in a completely different way than we do. She said it was so sad to think that this man is dying of cancer, and she had Christ sitting in a little plate on her lap, and he wouldn't eat him and be saved. It's a distortion, a horrible distortion of what the Lord's Supper really ought to convey and really ought to mean. There is no power in the bread and the wine. The power is in the finished work of Jesus. And so we look upwards towards serving and worshiping that risen Savior. So we need to enter uh, by grace and boldly identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus. The Bible reminds us that those who know Him are not to be ashamed of Him. Romans 10 and 9 through verse 11, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Just as the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. So whatever the world may say about you, however the world may want to treat you or mistreat you, the Lord's Supper is a prime opportunity to identify yourself with the Lord Jesus. This morning, we had two people identify through um, the waters of baptism, a public testimony that Jesus is their Savior and Lord. And that's a one-off event. Communion is something that we're encouraged to do regularly because it's an opportunity for us to communicate with the risen Lord, to look upward and to worship and praise Him. I think it's also an opportunity where, having said that it doesn't have any magical uh, properties to it, but that we do appropriate something nevertheless because it's an inward look. Mark 14 and verse 22 says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and He gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. So we, we've got to appropriate that. We've got to take the bread. That's what Jesus said to his disciples as he sat with them. It, it's not a one-man drama. We're not spectators at the communion table. It's not a pastor or an elder that somehow is kind of leading us, and, and we're passive observers of that. We're appropriating the elements, and, and there's something significant in that. 
we're deeply involved as we come to the Lord's Supper in a right attitude. When we come in the right attitude, we receive God's grace and the strength that we need for Christian living. I don't know about you, I find the Christian life impossible to live. Absolutely and utterly impossible. I was saved. I can give my life to the Lord Jesus when I was about 10 or 11. And um, for several years, tried to live the Christian life. Completely failed. Gave up by the time I was about 14 and then decided that I would just live my own life and do my own thing until the Lord convicted me of, of that sort of behavior when I was about 17, 18 years old. And what I hadn't realized up until that point was I was never supposed to live the Christian life because it is impossible. Absolutely and utterly impossible to live the Christian life in your own strength. If you don't know the passion of the Holy Spirit with you daily and routinely, you don't know what it means to confess your sin daily and ask for God's forgiveness, to recognize that in your weakness you need His strength, then you're probably not living the Christian life either. You may be very religious. You might even manage to be slightly, sanctimoniously holy and pure, but you're not much of a Christian if you're not doing it with the Holy Spirit living through you. It's a time to realize we need God's grace. Lord, I'm a sinner, penitent, repentant, one that's looking inward and realizing that I still can't do this. I need your strength. Not only are we to remember what Jesus has done for humanity, that he so loved the world that he gave his life that we might have eternal life. But we're also to contemplate what his sacrifice means to us as individuals. You see, Christ died on the cross to save sinners. And that's really good news for me. Because that's what I am. I'm a sinner. It's inherent in me. I, I come down from the line of the first Adam. And I can't please God for all my trying. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 and 15 to young Timothy, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So here you go, folks, accept us fully. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst. Well, maybe he's just not compared notes with you and me, eh? Because that's the reality. Faced with God's holiness, we feel that we're the worst of sinners. The good news is, Jesus died to save us. So what does it mean to you that Christ came into the world to save sinners? Is it a case of, that must be really good news for some of the sinners I know. Some of the bad people. I wish they would just understand that that's why Jesus came. Well, you're just proving my point that you're not a very good Christian either. Because you're the sinner that Jesus came to save. I'm the sinner that Jesus came to save. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of their God-intended potential and His standards. And that includes you. It includes me. Do you realize that you need saving? Has it dawned on you yet 
that your soul is in mortal danger, and that unless you come to Jesus in repentance, you will face the full fury of God's wrath in judgment for your sin. I think I've used this illustration before, but, but it makes some people laugh and it makes some people think, so I'll use it again. Um, some of you know that I used to be involved as a firefighter in a retained fire brigade up in Orkney. And one, one night, um, my station got a shout to a house fire in the town. Uh, and uh, when my colleagues arrived in the scene and kicked the door in, the house is well ablaze. And the neighbors are saying, there's somebody trapped inside, there's somebody trapped inside. So we've got four breathing apparatus um, Oper operators going in, pounding through the house, can't find the guy, can't find the guy, last room left, bathroom, ping the door in, here's the guy in the bath. Completely unaware of the commotion that's going on. Uh, he had decided just to have a relax, take his clothes off in the sitting room, put them in front of the fire to dry the air, headed off having a nice long soak in the tub, set the place on fire with his clothes in front of the electric fire. Didn't know his life was in danger. You know, you've heard that saying, they were rescued from the house and all they had was what they stood up in. <laughs> that was true for him as well. But could it be that tonight that you're quite relaxed about your life here on earth not realizing that there's a day coming when you will face far, far worse fate than physical death by fire. Horrible as that is. When we come to communion, it's the fact that you are saved. You see, I, I have to tell you that gentleman was actually very grateful even though you had no clothes left to, we got him a blanket you know we're, we're kind and benevolent firefighters but does the fact that Jesus sacrifice has saved you from your sin does that move your heart towards him in worship irrespective of the style of music irrespective of who's preaching and what he's wearing does it move you in worship? Can you sing, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down and think it's funny? Can you? Does the fact that Jesus is alive forever and is now seated at the right hand of God praying for you thrill your soul and cause you to bow before him in humility and worship? Do you use the time around the table to reflect on the work that Jesus has done for us as individuals? Our minds should reflect on what his death and his resurrection has accomplished in our lives. It's a great time to consider your personal walk with the Lord. Is your walk all that it should be? Are you living in a manner that pleases him? Is your heart right with the Lord? And along with these important truths, there is one other thing that we mustn't ignore because it carries a serious warning. We are warned against partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Each person should take time in self-examination. The Lord's Supper is for Christians. It's for non-believers. 
shouldn't take it. And it's for Christians who are walking in the light and are in fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ, living at peace in as much as it is possible for you to do with other believers in Jesus. If we come to the Lord's table with sin in our hearts, then we open our lives up to God's discipline. If we're not right with God and yet insist on putting on an outward mask that attempts to hide a dreadful inward sinful reality, then we will suffer as a result because God is a loving Heavenly Father who trains His children through consistent discipline and loving correction. So we mustn't take it lightly. Did you hear what Paul was saying? Some of you are weak. Some of you have become sick. And some of you have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism in the Bible for dying because you've treated holy things contemptuously. Paul's warning is stern. Get it sorted out around the table. Fourthly, we participate. It is an outward look. And that takes us into this whole thing about fellowship. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 through 17 says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread we break a particip participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. You see, the disciples all drank from one cup as it was passed from one to another. Communion is indeed a sharing occasion. I've had Christians, I think well-intentioned, but desperately uninformed, say to me, communion is so special for me. It's about me and my time with the Lord. Well, well, it is. We've looked at that, but it's also about the corporate aspect of communion. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're declaring His death and resurrection until He comes, and so we should think of that uh, simply as a reminder to us, but it's also a reminder that this is the gospel hope for all generations. New generations of sinners can come and join the feast if we go out and proclaim the message to them. It's an outward look as we participate. That is why we preach the gospel message. The gospel is the power of God to those who are being saved. No one hears the gospel unless we tell them, preach it to them. And preachers, witnesses, uh, won't go unless they're sent. And that sending needs to be an experience of an urgency and also an expectancy under the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel has to be proclaimed in all its fullness so that men and women, boys and girls, will have the opportunity to believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Communion reminds us of that reality as we look outward towards other people. And finally, we anticipate. It's a forward look. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Christ instructed His disciples to observe communion regularly until His return. I think it's down to each individual church or each individual family to decide the frequency of that. There's nothing prescriptive in Scripture about that. But regularly, yes, and when he returns, our communion with him will be direct, face to face. Thus, the service of communion points us to the future. Christ died for us. He rose again for us. And he ascended into heaven for us. And there he makes intercession for us 
at the throne of God. But let us not forget that he has also promised to return someday for us. That's a great hope that we have, that Jesus is coming. Jesus says to the disciples in John 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, or you trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says in verse 16, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So as well as all these other reflections, the Lord's Supper is a time to anticipate His second coming. Some of you have heard me say this before, that, that I was at the funeral of a young friend of ours some years ago. And knowing that Jesus is coming back one day, I thought, this would be a good time to do it, Lord right in the midst of the pain and the heartache of losing our young friend, young mother with her three little kids standing there. This would be a good time. But he is coming back, and who knows, he may come while we're sitting around the communion table one Sunday. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, it will be if our hearts are right with him and with each other. as well as these other reflections, it's a time to anticipate. One day soon, our Savior will return from glory and take his children home to heaven. That again is a source of enormous comfort. But you know what? It's a source of enormous challenge because some people aren't ready. They're just not ready to go. Maybe there's people in this room tonight who just aren't ready to go. That trumpet was to sound right now. Are you ready to go? Have you communicated the gospel message to those who need to hear it in order that they can have an opportunity to respond to it? A pastor was telling us that there is something in the region of 400,000 people in Edinburgh who aren't ready to go. It's a challenge. We're secure because we've trusted in Jesus, but others still need to hear so that they can trust Him too. And so the church, I argue, should do communion because Jesus told us to, but also because it's an amazing visual aid that reminds us of key doctrinal gospel truths. Just a moment of quietness and reflection, and then the musicians will lead us in our final song, O to See the Dawn.'"